There are many kinds of heroes. Today we're going to talk about two categories of heroes, one on Capitol Hill and the other in your neighborhood. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I don't know about you, but it seems to be getting worse. This simplistic reduction that all men... Jesus, not normally this difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Three, three, (laughs) three, two, one. I don't know about you, but it seems to be getting worse. This simplistic reduction that all members of Congress are the same. They're all corrupt. They all have been. And it's been like that forever. Too many of us forget that our elected representatives really are there to serve us. Therefore, it is our obligation as citizens to make our voices heard. And yes, it matters. They're all about getting reelected, after all. But there are indeed what John Kennedy called profiles in courage. These are the brave souls whose, who history sometimes notes as heroes. The easiest thing to do, of course, is to go along to get along. Just keep their heads down, and it is indeed hard to resist the popular tide, to follow rather than lead. Think of the attack on freedom with the rushed so-called Patriot Act. Some resisted. Remember the 2003 rush to war against Iraq? Now there is nearly universal agreement that was a terrible mistake. That there was resistance then. Same goes for another time the public was dishonestly led to a war in 1964. Instead of throwing a blanket of condemnation on every single member of Congress, we can raise the profile of those few who stood up for conscience. Our guest today, history professor Ronald Feynman, writes that there are at least six American senators of whom we can be proud for their remarkable courage, and vision. Ron Feynman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Thanks for inviting me. Ron Feynman teaches in the political science department at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. He's taught for 50 years at the college and university level and is the author of two books, Assassinations, Threats, and the American Presidency, from Andrew Jackson to Barack Obama, and Twilight of Progressivism, the Western Republican Senators and the New Deal. Boy, we forget about those Western Republican senators. There's some good ones, and we'll talk about them. He has two blogs. Progressive Republicans, they don't exist anymore. (laughs) No, it's true. It's amazing. And even liberal Republicans, like a Javits or a Rockefeller, you know, doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Well, I served in the New Hampshire State Senate with a lot of genuine conservatives. They're, they're frustrated. They're throwing up their hands. Well, the piece we'll discuss today that he wrote, which is on History News Network, is titled, Senate Votes Against War Resolutions Have Been Rare. Here are some noteworthy ones. Well, every culture needs heroes. It says a lot about America these days when virtually anyone in a military uniform is reactively, reflexively defined as a hero. Let's talk about the six brave senators who, frankly, in my mind, are heroes. 
genuinely courageous, facing overwhelming odds. So chronologically, the first on your list and on my list is the little-known Robert Fighting Bob LaFollette. As you say, his willingness to stand up for what he considered unwise and dangerous abuse of power has made him a hero for the ages. He may be reasonably well-known in the state of Wisconsin, but I doubt many listeners know of him. What was he well, about? I know of him. I, I always thought of him as my, my leading historical hero, a person, not, you know, you know, a person who died before I was born. I've always seen him as a great hero, Robert LaFollette. And I call him LaFollette, not LaFollette, by the way. I, don't, I guess either uh, way it can be announced. But also his son, I wrote about in my first book, Robert LaFollette Jr. And I also uh, got to interview, the, uh, to interview the widow of his other son, Philip LaFollette, who was governor of Wisconsin. Well, what about Bob LaFollette? I believe you're right and I was wrong. Uh, and I, who, who was he? Why was he known as, as Fighting Bob? And uh, tell okay. us about, about this little-known yeah. real hero. Yeah, he is considered by scholars as probably the greatest single governor in U.S. history as the Wisconsin governor from 1900 and 1906. He promoted all kinds of progressive reforms, and then he went to the Senate, and he tried for president in 1912 but failed, and then ran as a third-party candidate in 1924 on the Progressive Party, as it was called. Yeah. Uh, won his home state of Wisconsin, won 16.5% of the vote, which was amazing for a third party. And years later, I learned my, my, I learned my mother's father, my grandfather, a Jewish immigrant who became a citizen, voted for LaFollette, and I said, this is genetic, because yeah. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> That sounds good to me. Uh, he was a great reformer yeah. in so many ways on foreign and domestic policy, and he made a lot of enemies in the process, but he also left a legacy for his son, Robert Jr., who took over his Senate seat by election, and his other son, Philip, who, like him, became governor of Wisconsin in the 1930s. Well, as people who listen to the show regularly, and I suppose there are some, <laughs> no, I am... And by the a, way, they're Republicans, I want to point out. Yes. Not Democrats, absolutely. I want to point out, too. <laughs> well, that's a big thing, and, and they were progressive populists, uh, certainly. Yes. Pra prairie populism, it was called, even. And at the time, uh, World War One was happening. I am obsessed with the First World War. What was yes. his... He was in a small minority, but I believe he was right. Tell us about his position on the First World War and the U.S. getting into it. He thought that we should stay out of the war, you know, and he and George Norris, the second person on the list from Nebraska, yes. who, was, who I write about in my Twilight of Progressivism, because he was there throughout the New Deal. Um, they both thought that, that it was not our war to fight and that we should stay out of the war. And, of course, that was not a popular thought at all. Um, but they both voted against the Versailles Treaty and League of Nations membership after the war. Uh, yeah, it was... Norris was from Nebraska. Can you imagine a Nebraska progressive Republican today? <laughs> <laughs> I know. The, the, the closest they came to a progressive was uh, uh, Bob Kerry, who wasn't particularly left-leaning. <laughs> he, he, he was a senator from Nebraska, I believe. And Bob Kerry, the one with, with, you know, the one with, it was an E before the Y. Correct. Unlike John Kerry. <laughs> right. Well, he used to be a progressive, too. But, and, I know, but I'm saying they're both the same name, but Kerry from yeah. Nebraska's E-Y, John Kerry's without the E. <laughs> well, the, the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, despised yes. La Follette. Why did he uh, despise him? And it wasn't just... But Wilson. Wilson was an egomaniac. He really <laughs> had all kinds of problems. You know, he thought God gave him the direction and that he knew what was best. 
He couldn't get along with his own vice president. And later, when he had a stroke, the last 19 months of his time in office, Thomas Marshall, not saying he was a great guy, but he was the vice president, couldn't even see the president. And, uh, and Mrs. Wilson uh, actually was calling cabinet meetings. So we jokingly say the first woman president. <laughs> right. It was Edith Wilson. I know. What, what about uh, La Follette's wrath against Wilson's new policy, uh, clamping down on the press and civil rights violations? Yes, because Wilson became a real person against civil liberties, yes. passed all kinds of laws. And like Eugene Debs, the socialist leader, was put in prison for opposing the draft. And he was in prison when Wilson left office. He wouldn't give him a pardon. And Warren G. Harding gave him a pardon instead in 1921. A Republican. <laughs> yes, and, a, and not a great president, mm -hmm. but a decent human being more than Wilson was. Yeah. Wilson has really gone down in historical ranking. When I was young, he was seen as in the top 10 because of all the domestic reforms of the first term, um, particularly. But, but the point is that, uh, is that he's now ranked uh, much lower. You know, he's, he's, he's fallen into the mid-teens among rankings of presidents, and he didn't used to be that, so yeah. he has slipped. Well, the more I read about him, the less I like him. And I'll see what I can do to continue in that direction. Now, another well, one thing that's interesting is yeah. guess who passed him? Barack Obama in rankings. <laughs> wow. Well, another senator from the Midwest <laughs> is, is George Norris, as you mentioned. As you write, yes. historians. Really, Greg. Historians I used his papers in the Library of Congress. Um, you know, for my book about him later in his career. But George Norris was a real independent kind of a guy who promoted the Tennessee Valley Authority oh, wow. and really became a big promoter of the New Deal. But he was an isolationist until World War II. Uh -huh. He ended up backing FDR on the danger of Nazism and Japan. But he had all along been an isolationist. Well, it does seem there's a few Republicans these days, more and more of them, populist Republicans are speaking out against more American military uh, intervention in yet another country. And I wonder if they're tapping in, unconsciously, I'm sure, tapping into I this. I don't think they even have the knowledge of who these people are. There's a lot of ignorance <laughs> among Congress, unfortunately. Boy, you're right about that. It, it, I don't listen to someone like me because I'm a liberal. Oh, my God. That's a person who's, who's soft, they would say. <laughs> oh, God. I know. And being tough on, well, of course, you remember when John Kennedy debated Nixon and he made up this missile gap thing just to look tougher. That was the Democrat. So it really. Yes, because Democrats have to look tough and right. you know, they, they don't tend to be as, as, as nasty as Republicans. <laughs> and that's the problem because. You don't want to be nasty, but you can't be too nice, it seems. Well, so it does. you got to be tough. Uh, well, certainly America's democracy is under serious threat in 2022, and I'm not... I'm well, not... Trump is unbelievable. Trump makes Richard Nixon look like a choir boy by comparison. Absolutely. Well, I'm not sure that many Americans are motivated about the threat to democracy. I'm not sure they get it. Authoritarianism, of course, is what Trumpers are pushing. So tell us about oh, what... And these crazy Republicans like now Marjorie Taylor Greene oh, and what yeah. she said, saying gazpacho instead of Gestapo. Well, they, these they, the problem I said to my students is anybody can run for Congress and they can get enough votes, they win. Uh, I know. And, and, and unfortunately, education is devalued. And I think having seen, uh, gotten a sense of elitism, they, they now value ignorance as much. Tell us about Wayne Morse on the rightful powers between Congress and the president. Talk about protecting democracy. Wayne Morse. 
Yes, Wayne Morse, of course, had a very interesting career. He was from Oregon, but he had been brought up in Madison, Wisconsin, so it was influenced by La Follette, La Follette heritage. And he went to Oregon, and he started off in the Senate as a Republican, but a liberal Republican, as they called it, then broke with the party when Eisenhower got in and became an independent, and that affected the balance of power in the Senate in that particular Congress. And then in 55, he became a Democrat. But even if he was a Democrat, he really riled all of the presidents of the time. Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. Johnson really hated him uh, because he, he was always debating and, and always using the filibuster. And then you had to use the filibuster where you actually spoke, not just declared it like now. Um, and he was a supporter of labor rights, women's suffrage, and education, and against corporate domination and political corruption. But and he also was against the Red Scare, you know, of, McCarthy, of Joseph yeah. McCarthy. Uh-huh. Uh, by the way, I, I make comparisons not in class, but I, on my blog, The Progressive Professor, between him and Kevin McCarthy, who's not related, because here we had whatever you think of Joseph McCarthy, he was anti Soviet, right? right? And now we have someone who indeed seemed to be willing to see Russia go into Ukraine and back Trump. And he's not related, but it, to me, it's like we go from one horrible McCarthy to another horrible McCarthy. <laughs> And he could be the Speaker of the House next year. Oh, he could. You know, I hadn't even considered about that. But you're right. And, and they seem to uh, like Putin very, very much, uh, Trump's boss. Uh, well, there is the story, which never been confirmed, that in 16, there was discussion among members of the House of Representatives, and Ryan was the Speaker at the time. And McCarthy made some comment about Putin, and Ryan said, shh, don't talk. So it makes you wonder if there's some kind of collusion that was involved with Republican members of Congress and Trump and Putin at that time. You, you just wonder. I, I just think Kevin McCarthy is very dangerous. But Jim Jordan, who yeah. could be a competitor against him, is even worse. And, Ohio. Uh, he's a nut. He's totally nuts. Well, and, and I mean, I wouldn't say he has courage. He's, he's uh, been uh, accused of uh, child molestation. And do they care? Oh, I didn't say courage. I said that he's more of a scary guy, that yeah. he could actually become the speaker instead of Kevin. Oh, I just hope God. Democrats win the House. But but it's it's very tough. There's only a five-seat lead, so it's going to be tough. Yeah, but more yeah. It also was really good because he spoke up against the against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, along with Ernest Greening of Alaska, and that took a lot of guts. It did, and and just re- I remember, you remember the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Uh, yeah. It was kind of a it set the standard for lying to the public about and rushing into action. Yes. The entire House voted yes, and all but the two members, Greening of Alaska and Morse, voted no. And it became an open, open thing because then Secretary of State Dean Rusk said, we don't need any more authority from you. You gave it to us in the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Uh, well, authoritarianism, you know, it's yeah. something that the Trumpers want. And, and the, the people we're talking about today are not for authoritarianism. Thus, they are heroes. If you just tuned in, yeah. Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, about uh, Senate heroes that there have been through the years. Our guest today is Professor Ronald Feynman, and he has a list of six brave senators. Um, and, and tell us a little bit more about, uh, well, first of all, was um, 
George Norris and was he a Republican or and Wayne? Yes, George Norris was a progressive Republican who later became an independent. Right. Senior was a Republican right. who ran as a progressive capital P in 1924 for president. So they both broke from the party. And in the case of Morse, he was a Republican who became uh-huh. an independent, then a Democrat. So, uh-huh. but these were all you know they all were influenced by by prairie populism, I guess yes. you would say. But yes, they were. Wisconsin, Nebraska, and in the case of Morse, from Wisconsin, but went to Oregon. Yeah, it's so interesting to look at that part of the uh, country now, the uh, less densely populated area. Boy, that is Trump area, and I think largely it's because Democrats kind of abandoned them. And, and It's know. very hard to win in, in those areas. And yeah. the problem is, we look back to the 19th century, the Republicans were dominant then, and they wanted to create more Senate seats, so they decided that Dakotas would be two states, even though there's not very many people in North and South Dakota. Uh. And so really, they created four seats, and there's almost nobody there, but that gives them a lot of authority in the Senate, not only there, but other small states that the people don't represent much population, but they have an equal vote with New York, right. California, in Florida and Illinois. It's infuriating, but that's our crazy Senate. Yeah, yeah and hopefully I, I'd like to be able to talk about uh, uh, the Senate and that big problem in the future. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So as a, yes. there's another principal Republican I admired very much was Mark Hatfield, also of Oregon. You, you write that the much maligned Herbert Hoover was his role model. It, it, yes, and it's, he was a pacifist and an isolationist. Um, Hoover, when he was in office, and he was against against getting involved in World War II until, of course, the Japanese attack. Right. So he he liked his pacifism and non-interventionist spirit. Yes. Well, but he was a Not his economic policy, but I think for the foreign policy. Well, he was actually. Hoover was, if you read, you know, read about him, about you have obviously. Uh, he did a lot of good things, you know, helping out. Oh, he was a wonderful person before he got into the White House. He absolutely <laughs> was, and he was a great cabinet member, a Secretary of Commerce, yeah. and he's regarded as one of the top ten cabinet members in American history and his effectiveness under under Harding and Coolidge. No, he was really good. And he was involved in relief in yes. World War One, yes. relief, and he also was involved in helping get this the Soviet Union during a famine in the early 1920s. Even though they were communists, we were helping them as far as the famine issue there. Um, so he was very effective. He really was uh, a very decent man, uh, yeah. but he just couldn't hack, hack the depression. Uh, he didn't really know what yeah, to well. do. And then, of course, he was a pacifist, which was all right, but it actually became detrimental by 1940-41, I think. Oh, for sure. Now, Mark Hatfield was... I like Hatfield. always liked Hatfield. He was an yeah. evangelical Christian. Tell us yes. about that. What? That's a little surprising. Yes, he was very devout, very religious, so on some issues I wouldn't agree with him, like right. abortion. <laughs> he would, he would, you know, but, but I think he was a man of principle. He had been governor of Oregon for eight years. <clears throat> he had shown up at the Republican convention and given a, a, you know, a major speech, and I noticed him around 1960, and I said, wow, this guy's got a future. And then he went to the Senate, was there for 30 years, more than any other member in, in Oregon history in the Senate, and he was very principled on foreign policy, uh, you know, and, and he, st- he didn't care what people thought. So, therefore, he co-sponsored with George McGovern of South Dakota, yes. who I have loved, the McGovern-Hatfield Amendment, which was trying to call for an end of appropriations for the Vietnam War at the end of 1970 and the complete withdrawal by 1971. It didn't go anywhere as far as passage, but he and McGovern crossed party, you know, crossed aisles, and they both worked together, and I admire both of them. Well, yeah, and and Hatfield and all these people, 
paid a price. He Hatfield paid a price for standing against the tide of war in 1991. Tell us about that, please. The Iraq. Yes. Um, yeah, because he was against the Gulf War resolution, which you know he was one of only two Republican senators to vote against the Gulf War resolution. Um, he just thought that that we should not get involved there, and that it would be something we'd get into and we'd never get out. And in a way, it's worked out that way, hasn't it? <laughs> It certainly has. The Middle East, you know. Well, it, it, but I think his religious nature and his libertarianism is what I think made him the way he was, you know. Oh, interesting. I think that's that's something that uh, it's real, this libertarianism. And, we, ha- you know, I, I think we've sort of dismissed it too much over the years. And it's it's not a huge minority, but it's it's not inconsequential either. Another great one on your list of six who I frankly hoped would run for president is Russ Feingold. Why does he? Oh make- my! I love Russ Feingold, but he lost his seat twice right. to Ron Johnson. Oh my! I couldn't believe the second time. I, it just you know, Wisconsin's a strange place. It had Scott Walker, a horrible yeah. uh, governor. Right. It's had horrible people. It's also had progressive people. It's like a split. Well, I guess maybe most states, but particularly Wisconsin, is really split personality. And the right wing has really been winning lately. But I thought Russ Feingold was great, and I wanted him to run for president. Yeah. He and Paul Wellstone, uh. who you know who got killed in that plane crash in 2002. I, you know, they're both Jewish, by the way, too, just to point that out. Uh-huh. And I just admired them both. And I used to, with, with Paul Wellstone, imagine I was him. And people say, why would you imagine you were him? Because he taught political science, as I have, and he was born the same year I was. And it was Jewish. So I said, I tried to imagine I was him sometimes. <laughs> well, I, when I'm, I, being in New Hampshire here, I got to have lunch with him and Sheila once when he was thinking of running for president. It was it was amazing. What and a lunch with him and who else? And and his wife, who also oh, died. Oh wow! Who, who also died in that suspicious, in my mind, plane crash of two thousand two. Yeah. Oh, that was such a shock. And you know, I, I, I'm a very emotional person. When he died, and I came home, it was shocked. I cried. Yeah. I actually cried. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Anyway. Couldn't believe it. Well, I I, wanna, now, I don't know if he would have been elected or nominated. That's hard to say. But the thought that he was lost at age 57, I mean, that was just terrible. Yeah, it was. And I think he had some real potential to connect with people because this is progressive prairie populism that Democrats are afraid of. They don't want to anger their corporate funders. But there's, I mean, yeah. Trump tapped into that. And and we didn't understand it. We we got to listen to and respect those people. So a disincentive for people in Congress to be heroes is well, if you stand up against the tide, you lose. <laughs> I mean, we we see them as heroes now in in the history books. Uh, all all these people, but are those days gone? Do you think? I mean, what what about these heroism? Is it? Do we still value that idea of heroism? And, and I think there are some people in Congress that I can see as heroes. One, I really, I don't know how you feel, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, Democratic oh, yeah. Senator. I really like him. Re- I wanted, there was rumors he was going to run last time. He didn't. Uh-huh. But I really like the, I'm just, you know, I, I can identify with people who have empathy and compassion and, and, and come across as decent human beings. And there are many of them. But I think Chris Murphy is one of those people. Oh, and the other senator from Connecticut. There are a few, and there's a number in the House of Representatives. They do get yeah. bashed. And, I mean, that's the definition of a hero, is standing up for what you believe in against the tide. It can happen. Uh, do, do, what can people do to uh, encourage their members of Congress, senators and representatives, to, to have some chutzpah, shall we say, and to do what 
they should do on principle and respect the Constitution. I, you know, people yeah. feel like they're giving up, but I don't think we have to give up. Yeah, well, I think I'm most impressed with Feingold, with all the others and what they did, he actually voted, the only senator voted against the Patriot Act, oh, yeah. which, you know, is amazing. Only one senator, even, even Wellstone voted for it. Can you believe that? Really? Oh, my God. Yes, everybody that. voted for it, except for Russ Feingold. You know, everybody has their imperfections, of course. But, you know, and also he voted against the Iraq War resolution, yes. you know. So, uh and, he, and, you know, so, I mean, that really is something because after 9-11, it would be even harder than any other time, even Vietnam, because we were attacked at our yeah. own soil. So it's much harder to have yeah. taken a stand. You know, I think it's more courageous than the others, actually. Yeah, true, because it's really standing against the tide. Are those days gone, do you think? Uh, I don't know. There are some people, mostly in the House, I'm, I, it's hard to say the Senate... I don't know. The Senate has become has become much more right wing. I think even among Democrats. I don't know. I don't know. No, I agree. I I just don't know. But I I've always been a Senate follower. My first book was on progressives of the Senate, Republicans who backed the New Deal, even though FDR was a Democrat. I found them inspiring. Um, but today you don't find people like that very easily. You know Norris and LaFollette Jr. was were two of those people in the time of the New Deal. But there were others as well. Uh, like uh, Hiram Johnson of California, oh, yeah. William of Idaho. Uh, not perfect. They have their faults, too, but, but they were very principled. Uh, and also, I actually interviewed Gerald Nye of North Dakota, oh, wow. who became a, not a good guy, but he headed that Nye committee that became, he became regarded as a demagogue-type figure in the 1930s, almost like a Joseph McCarthy before Joseph McCarthy. But I, he was part of the group as a progressive on domestic matters, and I actually got to interview him in 1970. Uh, he was the only one of the group that was still alive, and I met him in D.C. and had a long interview and all that, um, and he treated me to lunch, and he was very nice. And, um, but I interestingly brought up something. I mentioned to him that he had been accused because he had of being anti-Semitic. And you know what he said? What? I, mean, I don't know if he knew I was Jewish, but he might've, he said, Oh no, Mr. Feynman. He's and this line. is so hilarious. Some of my best friends are Jews. Can yeah. you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. I and know. then he said, I sent a lot of Jewish boys to West Point from North Dakota. And I didn't say anything, so I thought, really? How many Jews lived in North Dakota in the 1930s? <laughs> but that's what he said. But what's interesting is he said, you can use what I said. And I said, I'll send you a copy of it. And I did. And this was in a couple months went by, and he didn't answer. And I wrote again to his home and said, did you get this? Blah, blah, blah. This is, of course, before the internet. Didn't get an answer. And then suddenly I opened up the New York Times. He died. Oh. Three months after I saw him, he had gone to the hospital the day after I interviewed him. Oh, is that story? yeah, that, that's what the a last shame. person to interview him. There have been others who had interviewed him, but I actually had the last interview. He was complaining about his legs bothering him. Yeah. You know, the next day he went to the hospital and never came out. So his wife, his widow said, you can use, you know, I trust you'll be fair. So she just said, you can use whatever notes you have. So I did use it in my book. Well, I hate when that happens. I must say it's kind of rude to die before your work is done, but that happens. <laughs> Uh, well, we can, you know, as I said in the beginning, they're not all the same. They're not all corrupt. We need to remember that, that that's important to democracy. Because if we think they're, eh, they're all corrupt, you know, forget it. Then that kind of clears the path for an authoritarian. And that is yes. 
I do think you should give some attention to Ernest Greening. He would not like to be passed him by. Oh, I really <laughs> mentioned Alaska. a little bit, but not that much. Mentioned, but he was appointed governor of Territorial Alaska from 39 to 53. He was involved in the statehood fight. And then he was the first senator from Alaska in 1959 to 1969, born of Jewish parents. I hadn't been aware until he, that he was Jewish. You know? And he trained to be a doctor, but he preferred journalism and politics. So he worked in Puerto Rico in the Puerto Rico Reconstruction uh, Administration. Wow. Mm. And he was in the Interior Department under Harold Ickes in the 1930s. Mm. And then he was a territorial governor. So, um, and he was also voting against the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. And, you know, what's really interesting is is that he lost his seat in 1968, and so did Morse in the primary because of their stand, but they still, you know, they still backed what they had done. And if they care about history at all, which I believe they do, it does matter. It, they're not all corrupt. We can. There's reason for hope that they could actually serve the common good, and sometimes they do. The blog is called uh, Progressive Pro- Progressive Professor Progressive and I'm also on History News Network under yes. my name, blog Ronald L. Feynman. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's good to hear about these really good people, these heroes that we can. Yeah, it was fun talking to you. I hope, I hope we'll have another opportunity. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Bruce. Creating a preferred future is obviously about a lot more than electoral politics. It's not just making our voices heard on policy issues like war and peace and climate change and ending systemic racism, Medicare for all. Especially in these long, dark days of the pandemic, what we can do with our own little footprint on Earth is more meaningful than one might have thought in the past. Our guest in this segment of Keeping Democracy Alive is Jan Spencer, who's been a resident of Eugene, Oregon, for the past 30 years. He's known in Eugene for his activism, which is a convergence of economics, permaculture, social uplift, and urban land use and care for the natural world. And uh, I just want to say the values that drove Western expansion in the 18th and 19th century are not only not relevant anymore, but are positively what we need to get away from. What, what You say that what we have grown up with is what we need to move away from. That's a hard sell. What makes you think people will embrace that kind of thinking? And, and, and what, what is that, what's the uh, 
preferred future uh, that, that you're talking about, the permaculture, what does it offer Americans? A lot of questions there. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me, Bert. It's good to be here. I admire your program. We've grown up in a narrative all through school. Uh, I can certainly testify in my own life, uh, which was a totally average public school, that conquering the West, conquering nature, growth and development was our history. We were taught that. And implicitly, of course, it's the economic system, uh, it's manifest destiny, it's American exceptionalism. Yeah. That's what we grew up with. And I personally never heard any teacher or any textbook question the wisdom of that narrative. And that narrative has got us in a lot of trouble with uh, damaging the natural world. And I would add also damaging what I like to refer to as positive human potential. I mm. think humans are capable of better than what we experience every day in today's world. Oh, boy, you got that right. I'll tell you, as, as people know, and they're sick of me talking about the First World War, but I think about the positive human potential, the things we could have done. But what we did do, you know, more and more killing machines, that's what we do with our creativity. I'm sorry, but, I, you know, maybe it's time to, as you say, move away from that uh, that we've grown up with. And, and permaculture, what is, what is that and what does it offer Americans? What do you mean by that? Yeah, permaculture is a... You know, a lot of languages in the world are going extinct uh, every day. Some uh, exotic small language or dialect goes extinct. But I look at permaculture as a language that, of course, can be spoken in any particular local language. But the principles and the ideals of permaculture, I think, constitute a language in its own right. And that language articulates approaches for taking care of human needs in ways that are friendly to people and planet. Permaculture has a system of values, ideals, and principles. Uh, one can look uh, on YouTube or online and you can find all you want to know about permaculture, but it's about taking care of human needs mm. in ways that are friendly to people and planet. And another important part of permaculture is regeneration. How do we repair the damage that's already been done? Mm. There's so much potential there. When you know, when Biden talked about, uh, well, he still does talk about build back better. A little bit of regeneration. I've long been in favor of a new New Deal or even a Green New Deal. Uh, we we haven't. Yeah, I I'm not uh, too up on all the build back better. And my guess is, uh, I know that in uh, past months that Joe Biden has uh, mentioned something like some type, some type of uh, Earth Corps or some type of national service where young people yeah. or maybe even any age kind of people could receive uh, some sort of training and uh, opportunity to do public service, which could be both urban and rural. I would celebrate that oh, myself. Yes. I'm totally in favor of that. I, I couldn't agree more. I don't know why <laughs> more politicians don't talk about that. I think everybody would like it, left and right, you know, to require 
giving back to your community. You know, it's both a conservative and a not so conservative uh, idea. It's just good for people and good for the earth. And go ahead. Absolutely. I, I think that that's a, a, what you just said is a, an extremely important uh, observation that uh, community service, how can we make where we live a better place, can bring everybody together. Yeah, I, I believe it can in, in so many different ways, and you know, physical as well as emotional and mental, spiritual, silly stuff like that that I think really does matter. Now, there have long been those who, you know, kind of on the fringe, who insist the only real option to all this, you know, overdevelopment and industrialization and paving parking lots, you know, paving paradise and put up a parking lot, that some people, you know, just reject it altogether and abandon all aspects of modern society. That's not what a lot of people do. For most people, that's very unrealistic. We like computers, the internet, good music and video systems. They're kind of fun and useful. However, driving huge, wasteful vehicles, having an uncaring, throwaway society just ain't an option anymore there is an in-between i think between you know abandoning it altogether and just saying oh just keep on going and you know with the 19th century modality you talk about living within the boundaries of the natural world and bringing out the best in positive human potential now that is quite a radical shift from the 200 year old ethos of seeing it as a virtue to crash through any boundaries of nature what does this shift on understanding boundaries look like? Yeah, I think uh, in order to answer that question, uh, one should point out what, uh, the, what I refer to as the, the historical narrative that we've grown up with is a manifest destiny that humans are here to dominate nature. Right. And that's a, a very dangerous, uh, a very dangerous point of departure for a civilization. I like to call upon what uh, I would describe as the wisdom of the world's great spiritual traditions. That's not the religion. That's the wisdom. That's the social, personal code of conduct uh, for what would be uh-huh. a, a wonderful platform for uh, creating a preferred future. And that wisdom goes something like this. This is wisdom that almost every spiritual tradition shares, regardless of geography, uh, regardless of time and history. And it goes something like this. It's care for the natural world. It's modesty of lifestyle. Mm. It's service to the community. It's being responsible and accountable for our own actions, and that could be in scale from at home in our personal lives Mm -hmm. to the corporate level as well. And it's also uh, uplift of the spirit. How can we move towards more the potential we all have uh, in our uh, as as individuals, as neighborhoods, as communities, and in my opinion, capitalism as we know it is fully in the way it is. Uh, it is not uh, a partner for creating a preferred future. Full on. Well, on that week, you and I may disagree slightly. I I think you know there can be 
conscientious capitalism. Greed, to me, is the problem. You know, you got to, banks need to lend money for small businesses to get going. It ain't, you know, uh, we've had socialism for the very richest for a long time, and uh, we've seen how that works, but I, I think there can be something in between uh, that uh, maybe, you know, we, we can have, you know, greed, again, is the problem. It's like a sickness, I think, that people with a ton of money want more and more and more. So I don't know about capitalism itself. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I uh, certainly recognize there's different flavors of capitalism. Absolutely. Uh, the, the flavor of capitalism, more of social democracy, that uh, is more uh, apparent in the the northern European uh-huh. countries that that has uh, more more thought of social services yeah. and uh, community and social well-being. That's not the same as uh, what we have in this country. Sure. And I would be quick to add that our economic system has absolutely produced uh, some wonderful. Uh, consequences, absolutely. We've got clean air, or we've got clean water to drink. Anyway, maybe not so much in the local river, but it thrives. Capitalism, as we know it, requires overconsumption. It requires people buying stuff that uh, for many people they don't don't need. And meanwhile, at the same time, there are people, uh, millions of people, in the United States who don't even have sanitary plumbing. It leaves a lot of people behind. But there's a, uh, if you go online and you look up the term ecological footprint, you can find many articles, lots about ecological footprint. It's hard to say exactly what the number is, but I've heard from many sources that in general, the footprint of the average American, if everybody oh, on yeah. planet Earth was to live like the average American, we'd need something like five planets. <laughs> not only, this is important, not only to provide the raw materials and the resources, but also to clean up the mess. Well, yeah, for sure. And I, I will say I'm largely a fan of uh, FDR. He talked about tethering capitalism to the common good. I still think, and Bernie Sanders was for that stuff. It wasn't, you know, wiping out capitalism per se. But you talk about Europe. You plan to spend three months in Europe this summer. I look forward to summer, I must say, to research cities that are pushing back on on cars. We in the United States, we don't have public transportation. Everybody here is reliant, for the most part, on single passenger cars. And I see that the electric car demand is soaring, but that has its own environmental problems. Realistically, here in America, what might our alternatives be, and what do you hope to learn from your research in Europe? Yeah, uh, I uh, have been in Europe. I've spent a fair amount of time in Europe uh, in in different trips. uh, As much as two years, I've been in Europe all over the place. And... Uh, I have a great interest, as you mentioned early on, in urban land use. I'm not professional in terms of urban land use. It's just become a great interest of mine uh, in the past 10 or 15 years because I'm involved with my neighborhood association. And the land use and transportation is a big part of any neighborhood, any city. But I know uh, that there are 
cities and towns in Europe that have a reputation for various approaches to reining in the domination of automobiles. Uh, there's a, a couple towns, several towns in Holland. There's Houghton, there's Groningen. Of course, a lot of people know about Amsterdam and Utrecht as being cities that put a good deal of effort into uh, reworking their uh, urban landscape in favor of transit, of walking, of bicycles and nature. Copenhagen, of course, is well known. Uh, I also want to visit a place in Germany in a in a city called Freiburg. Uh, uh-huh. This one neighborhood called the Vauban neighborhood. If people in Vauban neighborhood want to have a car, it has to be kept in a city garage uh, a mile away, and the rent for that car is twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh-huh. So. Most of the neighborhood, uh, cars can go into the neighborhood, but they can't hang out there. Uh, Paris is a a big city that's pushing back on cars. Uh, And all over France, actually, Barcelona, Spain, has a project they call the the Urban... Urban renewal uh, and their their flagship action is a process under the the title Superrelas, which is Catalan for superblocks, where they're turning urban streets into uh, playgrounds and places where people can meet and breathe fresh air. Uh, you can you can find out more about the superblocks in Barcelona by going on YouTube. There's lots of videos. But the motivation is the realization, and this is happening somewhat in the United States, too, absolutely. Uh, even in my town, lots of cities are, are pushing back in very modest ways. But it's the realization that perhaps the most iconic product of uh, of our economic system is the automobile yes, yes. and suburbia and considering the damage that it does to uh, the, the air and the water social cohesion we just have to push back we do have to push back, that's for sure. It is difficult. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking with Jan Spencer about uh, permaculture and different relations with with nature. And, and when you talk about, you know, people agreeing in a community and the government doing things, I mean, heck, here in America, we can't, people don't want to put a mask on to save their own lives. I think that's tyranny. It's absolutely bizarre to me. But if we can't get people to wait to wear masks and to care about their own health and the health of their neighbor, how, you know, we, we tried. I mean, we had real optimism back, back in the late 60s. There was great hope for a shift in, in values. And it's basically the same stuff as what you're talking about. Those values, to me, look more applicable than ever in the 2020s. Sure. You're absolutely right, and a an important item that uh, makes an impression on me is that when you consider 
so many public interest organizations. They could be nonprofits, they could be local, they could be nationwide, environmental, uh, climate justice, Black Lives Matter, uh -huh. uh, indigenous lands. All of these organizations have a common denominator. They're making efforts to address a particular problem caused by overconsumption, the consumer culture, capitalism. They're all on the same team. And if these organizations could work more effectively together, uh. then they, would, they could possibly create a united front. Mm. And everybody still focuses on their particular issue, right. but they work together with a common mission statement to live within the boundaries of the natural world and have social goods uh, and positives also in agreement. But all of these organizations are working to repair the damage caused by our economic system and overconsumption. They're all on the same team. That's true. I don't know if they know it. I mean, Black Lives Matter is part of the same team. You think about all these things, it's all about the same team. An old friend of mine, Abby Hoffman, said a long time ago, the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. We don't. My point is, we don't tend to work together. We can. I mean, there's clearly that common value, and maybe it's starting to happen. And, you know, you talk about community. Boy, the isolation is just amazing right now. You know, most of us really suffer as individuals for the lack of a sense of belonging, feeling part of a tribe or a community uh, and, and suburbia. What does your research suggest regarding the future of community and the suburbs? Yeah, I would venture to say that if more people had an idea of what the possibilities are, then there could be a a the beginning of what some people refer to as a paradigm shift. Uh -huh. And and I would suggest that even even demographics that we look at as being how could anybody ever believe that kind of information? Uh, maybe I should just be full-on out front with it, the, the people who are uh, enthusiasts for our former president, right. Donald Trump, if they were to realize they are victims of the same system that Trump represents, yes. if those people and all people recognize the value of permaculture, of knowing our neighbors, of living within the boundaries of the natural world, the benefits that could be gained... We all want security, you know, we yes. all want to feel like that we're, we have value. The system in place devalues people and mm. it devalues the natural world, and that translates into profit margins. Mm. And, and I, I do think that part of the problem why Democrats have not connected with people in lower density, uh, lower population density areas, uh, we don't listen to them. We don't respect them. But I, what you're talking about here, I think they would connect with this. I really do. If they can be offered it, you know, everybody wants to feel a sense of community, like they're making a difference in the world and, and feel good about where they are. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned uh, in passing just a few moments ago 
I gained a lot of my interest in urban land use because here in Eugene, the city has a neighborhood program. Lots of cities have neighborhood programs, and what that means is the city provides services, uh, social communication infrastructure to assist people in their neighborhoods, and a neighborhood does have a geographical area. It's got boundaries. I live in the River Road neighborhood, and we have monthly meetings, we have agendas, we have committees that people who want to create a committee for social justice or for preparedness or for repairing the natural world, a neighborhood association is a completely awesome location for people to become involved in. When you're there participating, you help create the agenda. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be, you know, out in the country. It can be uh, suburbia and in the city as well. As you mentioned, there are neighborhood organizations in various different cities. You mentioned uh, a paradigm shift. Tell us about your current radio project, 2045, A Paradigm Shift Odyssey. What's that? Basically, what that's about is, like yourself, I have a radio program here in Eugene, and uh, the name of that uh, radio program is Creating a Preferred Future. And what you've heard during this conversation, uh, I go into greater detail uh, on my podcast, and those can be found at Suburban permaculture.org. Current project I'm working on, 2045 uh, Odyssey of Paradigm Shift. It is set in the year 2045, and it's more of a narrative looking back Uh at how we arrived to Uh a place in 2045 where we're making progress, and some people are actually looking to each other saying, is this actually what the early going of paradigm shift looks like? This isn't ecotopia, but a lot of the things that we're talking about during this conversation sound really out there, you know, of living within our ecological footprints and uh, what would real democracy look like. Uh But times are changing And what looks really out there right now in 10 years, in 15 years, it's not going to look so far out there. More people are going to embrace ideas that they can't even imagine right now. Oh, I think you're right. And this show, as you know, is called Keeping Democracy Alive. What about democracy? It's a heavy lift, uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. How does what you're talking about connect with that? Well... I would question the the assertion that we even have a democracy. Well, true. Just because we can vote doesn't mean we have a democracy. You can vote in Russia, and you don't have much democracy <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's multiple political parties. Uh, you can vote for the Greens. You can vote for the Libertarians. They have no prayer of winning because the entire system is dominated by the Republicans and the Democrats, and in my opinion, both of those political parties serve the status quo. Sure, they're a little different, Uh, they've got a a slightly different flavor, but they both serve the economic system, first first of all. Well, there there was and is the whole Bernie Sanders faction, which really caught on, I think, 
you know, that is the future. I really do. I think that's uh, that's a way to connect with people. This, uh, you know, elitist uh, Hillary Clinton serving the the powers that be. They ain't going to cut it anymore. Yeah. Oh, I'm. I would not equate all the the elected uh, persons as being all the same. Right. Not at all. I wouldn't say that what, uh, whatsoever. I think. I think Bernie and uh, and uh, certainly uh, a number of other oh. elected representatives have definitely got a clue, but that's a small number of them. And what I see is essential for moving forward in regard to the economic system is that capitalism practices a not very tidy item of procedure that's called external cost. And what basically that means is what we paid at the cash register doesn't address the damage that item causes uh, in its production and its use and its disposal and that is that to me completely disqualifies capitalism as we know it because it doesn't tell an honest story about what's for sale i look at christmas and you think about all the stuff that's open for a day and then fills up our landfills it's just it's nuts but but capitalism depends on Christmas to a large extent. That's just symptomatic, and it's great to give a gift, you know, and to share. Uh, Wonderful, that's great. But the entire system depends on overconsumption. How many commercial messages does the average person (laughs) receive every day? It's hundreds. We live in one of history's most successful examples of social engineering, and it's called the consumer culture, and it's so much dominated our lives, we can hardly imagine anything different. Well, but that's what we have to do. We have to start imagining things different. When I was in my teens and 20s, there was the... uh, the whole counterculture thing, and uh, I swear those values are more applicable than ever. History is full of, of idealism, and I think what True. that idealism speaks to is these uh, wisdom of the great spiritual traditions I mentioned earlier. Humans are capable of doing wonderful stuff, and all through history, humans have done wonderful actions, beautiful ideas, beautiful actions, and that continues right up to the present. Positive human potential, I completely believe everybody has enormous potential in their own lives. It doesn't mean everybody becomes a Mother Teresa or a Martin Luther King. It doesn't mean that. But it means helping to create, at this time in history, a term I like to use is civic culture, where people are engaged with where they live, and they realize there's issues and there's problems. We have a lot to repair. Uh, Our neighborhood association addresses some of these. All of them do. Hundreds and thousands of organizations all over the country are addressing the problems that capitalism creates, and i got to be hopeful about that. There are wonderful people doing hard work, but the bigger picture is if we work together, we can come closer to restoring democracy or creating democracy, healing the planet, and uplifting and manifesting our own positive potentials all at the same time. That's a a wonderful principle of permaculture. It's called key leverage point. Where in a system 
kind of like a, a martial art. How do you leverage a modest amount of effort into a big result? And I consider a key leverage point, hopeful and ambitious as it is, to move away from capitalism. Well, I do believe we can do it, and I always like to end on a, on a positive, optimistic note, and that we have. Thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Jan Spencer. It's uh, it's nice to put that vision out there, because I think it's happening. Yeah, thanks, Bert. Thanks, Bert. 